our Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 14 on Sunday morning. We're studying the book of 1 Corinthians together. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles and you get their attention, they'll get a Bible into your hands. And please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1. Paul writes and he declares, Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the Spirit he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I wish that you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may be receive edification. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you by either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophesying, or by teaching. Even things without life, whether flute or harp, when they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sounds, how will it be known what is piped or played? For if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? And so likewise you, unless you utter things, utter uh, by the tongue words easy to understand, How will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are, it may be, so many kinds of languages in the world, and none of them is without significance. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to him who speaks, and he who speaks will be a foreigner to me. Even so you, because since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. Therefore, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is the conclusion then? I will pray with the spirit, that is in tongues, and I will also pray with the understanding. I will sing with the spirit, and I will also sing with understanding. Otherwise, if you bless with the Spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not understand what you say? For you indeed give thanks well, but the other is not edified. I thank my God, I speak with tongues more than you all. Yet in the church I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brethren, do not be children in understanding. However, in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. In the law it is written, with, tu- with, tu- with men, <laughs> okay, got to get this right, with men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to these people, And yet for all of that they will not hear me, says the Lord. Therefore tongues are for a sign not to those who believe but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers but for those who believe. Therefore if the whole church comes together in one place 
They all speak with tongues, and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers. Will they not say that you're out of your mind? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he's convinced by all and he is convicted by all. And thus the secrets of his heart are revealed. And so, falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for this passage. And we thank you that this is important to you, how we view the gifts of your Holy Spirit and how a church service operates and how you are represented. And we thank you for the clarity on this subject and the detail that you give us here in these 25 verses. And we pray that you would bless our understanding of this important part of the Christian life. And, Lord, that you would use our time studying the gifts of your Holy Spirit to deepen our understanding of you, of how you want to use us, how we can be a blessing to the body of Christ around us and the world around us as well. So we pray that you'd speak personally to us from this passage this morning, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Chapters 12 through 14 of 1 Corinthians are uh, the cure for ignorance related to spiritual gifts. And Paul makes it very clear in chapter 12, in the very first verse there, he declares, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. And what follows then is an attempt to cure the ignorance related to spiritual gifts that existed in the church at Corinth. It is interesting to note that he writes this uh, concerning ignorance to the church at Corinth, the church that would be considered uh, in the vernacular of today, considered to be uh, not only a charismatic church, but probably a very Pentecostal church by our definitions. And he wrote to them early in the book in the first chapter, and he commended them for their attitude towards spiritual gifts and the fact that they became behind in no gift. All of the gifts of the Holy Spirit were being operated within the uh, church at Corinth, and um, uh, Paul commended them for it, and he considered it to be a great blessing that they had this kind of openness to the gifts of the Holy Spirit. You know, the church at Corinth, they take a little bit of a beating, especially in this area of spiritual gifts and all, but you've got to give them credit for really being open to the supernatural of the Christian life, open to uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, open to receiving whatever gift of the Holy Spirit God had uh, given to them, and then operating in those uh, gifts. Sometimes it's easy to bash the church at Corinth, and then, um, but when you look around at professing Christianity in the United States of America and you ask yourself, what percentage of Christians do you know that even know what their spiritual gift is, that are more than open to uh, discovering the gift that God has given to them, but they actually earnestly desire the gift and they are operating effectively in the body of Christ and in the world with their spiritual gift. So it's easy to pick on them, 
But I think uh, sometimes we could be picked on in even greater measure if a letter were written to us today. So this was a beautiful thing. They desired spiritual gifts. They were open to this supernatural side of Christianity. But at the same time, Paul found it necessary to address the church concerning their ignorance concerning spiritual gifts. Is it possible for a charismatic church to be ignorant concerning spiritual gifts? Is it possible for a Pentecostal church or someone from a Pentecostal background to be ignorant concerning spiritual gifts? It can be, because that's exactly the kind of church that uh, Paul is writing to in the church at Corinth. So sometimes there is it within our mind, and there can even be pride in the heart of the person that comes from a charismatic background or a Pentecostal background, um, and you can sometimes try and talk with them about this, and in their mind, they are the experts in the body of Christ simply because they're charismatic or Pentecostal. And yet here is that kind of a church that is operating out of very significant ignorance concerning the gifts of the Holy Spirit and how to operate them in a way that's a blessing to the church. We all have our blind spots, and that's why uh, the Bible is faithful to address those. So this passage is very valuable to each of us as Christians and uh, because, in my humble opinion, the, for... Uh, the body of Christ here now 2,000 years separated from this letter that was written to the church at Corinth, there is as much ignorance concerning spiritual gifts as ever there was in the first century. In chapter 12, Paul encouraged them and us that every Christian has at least one gift of the Holy Spirit, and he then instructed them that the gifts of the Holy Spirit were to be used for the profit of others and that every member of the body of Christ and the local church is important and as necessary as every other part of the body of Christ. Those that possess the gifts of the Holy Spirit that operate behind the scenes, gift of administration, gift of mercy, um, a gift of helps, these are behind-the-scenes uh, gifts. Those people are as important to the function of of a local church and representing the Lord as those that God has gifted with more public uh, gifts, gifts like word of wisdom, word of knowledge, prophecy, a calling to teach, uh, these kind of things. The main problem uh, in Corinth concerning spiritual gifts was really very, very simple. The vibe within the church was that those who possessed the more public or more vocal gifts of the Holy Spirit were, uh, as a result of that, considered more spiritual than those who did not. And there is a tendency in all environments, including spiritual environments, for people to gravitate toward what is being rewarded. If something's being rewarded, we know how to find that out in a hurry and get in that line. So when you've got a church where all of the emphasis and spotlight is being put on those with the more public gifts and you are diminishing the ministry of those who serve the Lord in quieter ways but equally important ways in the body of Christ, then the word of wisdom, word of knowledge, prophecy, the gift of tongues, those end up becoming the most coveted gifts 
and then to possess those gifts within the church, and this was certainly true at Corinth, it became kind of an unspoken badge of spirituality. And those who didn't possess those gifts were uh, considered to be second-class citizens. They have less than what God has uh, for them. And that same kind of thing goes on in some churches even today. In chapter 13, Paul addressed the motive for their using their spiritual gifts, and he told them that they needed to op- we need to operate in our spiritual gifts out of love for other people. At Corinth, uh, they were using the gifts with very much a self-centered way to draw attention uh, to themselves. And, um, and they weren't being exercised with the idea of benefiting other people, but all of the selfish motives of a desire to be seen or a desire to be considered spiritual by other people or to be well thought of by other people. And so those are wrong motives. And if everybody's got that motive that, hey, I want to be seen, I want at the end of this service, everybody to go to their cars and say that mine was the greatest prophecy or mine was the greatest gift that was exercised on that day, then it's going to get pretty carnal and it's going to be a pretty messy uh, service. Well, given all of this, as we are going to see here in chapter 14, the church services at the church at Corinth became highly competitive, each person competing with the other for the top spot in people's minds or to be thought of as the most spiritual or having done the most impactful thing in the church service uh, on that day. And Paul's going to address some of this a little bit later in the chapter, uh, which we'll get to, Lord willing, next week. But first he addressed what was apparently the greatest abuse concerning spiritual gifts in the church, and that had to do with the exercise of the gift of tongues during uh, the church services. And in doing so, Paul is making one very, very simple point, and that is in the public assembly, the exercise of the gift of prophecy is always superior to the exercise of the gift of tongues for the simple reason that The gift of prophecy is understood. It's spoken in a language that everybody understands in the room, while when someone speaks in a gift of tongues, the only person who understands what's being said is God himself. So let's begin to look at some of these points that are in the passage. He tells us in verse 1, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. So despite all of the controversy concerning spiritual gifts that were going on related to uh, the church there at Corinth and the controversial things that are sometimes done with spiritual gifts even in churches today, we are never ever to give up on spiritual gifts simply because some people misuse them. We are always as Christians to desire spiritual gifts in our life and to operate in the gifts that God has given to us. Any gift that God gives to us is a good gift. He can't give us anything other than a, a, a good gift. And I think that that's very important to realize concerning all of the gifts, but for our purposes here this morning, concerning the gift of tongues. It is a good gift. It's a wonderful gift. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit that he gives to uh, people. I remember talking with a pastor friend of mine 
several years ago. And um, we were talking about the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit and the subject went to tongues. And he had been raised in a very, very hyper-Pentecostal background where the services were very much like at Corinth, people interrupting one another and somebody's trying to do something and somebody interrupts them and then tongues is over here and it doesn't get interpreted and, and the whole kind of mess. And he said to me, he said, if I never hear the gift of tongues again in my life, it'll be too soon. And on one hand, I understood exactly uh, what he was saying, knowing a little bit uh, about his background. But on the other hand, it's very contrary to Paul's exhortation here. And this may be a word to some that come from a background where you just say, listen, I've been there, done that, I'm sick of the whole kit and caboodle. I don't want anything uh, uh, to uh, do with it. But just because the gifts of the Holy Spirit are abused by some Christians, it doesn't mean that we are free to give up on them. And many people are like my pastor friend related to gifts of the Holy Spirit, and they just give up on them because they've been abused. And that's an important thing for us to realize, not to have a knee-jerk reaction against the misuse of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Maturity will say in our lives, you know, they're misusing and they're abusing the gift, but I'm going to use it properly. The fact of the matter is we don't throw out food just because some people misuse it. We don't refuse medicine because some people misuse medicine. We don't throw out marriage just because some people represent it horribly. And the same things to be true related to spiritual gifts. You know, the funny thing to me about when I think about the gift of tongues, and the gift of tongues is spoken of, uh, you know, so much in this chapter, sometimes I've just thought between the Lord and I, thought to hit, you know, and said, Lord, you know, knowing the division that it would bring to people, I mean, people saying that it's not for today and it's of the devil, and other people saying you can't be saved unless you have it, and all kinds of people in between and everything, and you just think, Lord, was it... Is this gift worth the aggravation? <laughs> I mean, looking down through history, seeing what it would do and how people would misuse it, how they would abuse it, how they would misrepresent it, is, is it worth what has come about all of this? And yet I realize that God, as He looked down, even through all of the abuses, He gives the gift because He says, no matter how, much goofiness people do, illegitimately related to the gift. The gift is so important and so necessary to those who I have the gift for that it's worth all of the aggravation. And there's a lot of aggravation. So that tells me that this gift is a very, very important gift to the Lord and to us. It must do something very, very uh, important in our lives, and it's obviously very, very special to him. Now, notice in the end of verse 1, in the public assembly we are to exercise the gift of prophecy over the gift of tongues. And so Paul is not making the case that the gift of prophecy is always greater than the gift of tongues in every context of the Christian life, because it isn't. Here he's talking about church services where Christians and non-Christians 
are present. And all the way through the instruction in chapter 14 here, this is the context of his remarks, church services. And so he repeats the church, the church over and over again. Verse 4, verse 5, verse 12, verse 19, verse 23, verse 28, verse 33, verse 34, verse 35. He's talking about the superiority of prophecy to tongues in an environment like this. A Sunday morning service, a Sunday night service, women's Bible study on Wednesday, um, the men's Bible study on Wednesday, other Bible studies as well, where we throw the doors open in the church and anyone can come in. Christians come into this room. People that don't know Christ yet come into this room. People who Paul refers to in this passage as unlearned. They are seekers. They don't know anything about Christianity. And they say, boy, if I want to know something about Christianity, I better walk into a Christian church and find out a little bit about this. And so they come in. They're not Christians yet, but they're investigating what this is all about. And so it's talking about this kind of gathering where you've got Christians and non-Christians together and our church services are to take everyone into account and to make sure that they're an edifying experience for everyone. Notice in verses 2 and 3 the reasons that the exercise of the gift of prophecy is superior to the exercise of the gift of tongues. He tells us concerning tongues in verse 2, For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands him, however in the Spirit he speaks mysteries. So what is this thing called the gift of tongues? It is a supernatural enablement by the Holy Spirit to speak prayer and praise and worship and thanksgiving to God. And prophecy is superior to the gift of tongues in the public assembly because in most cases only God understands what is being spoken to him when someone is exercising the gift of tongues. But if it's spoken in tongues and it's a language that's not known by anyone else in the room, then only God understands what's being spoken uh, to him. I want you to notice that the direction of the communication of the gift of tongues is upward toward God. It is man speaking to God. It is never God speaking to man. To speak in tongues is to speak to God. And it is a supernatural language given by God's Holy Spirit for that purpose of speaking to Him. And so uh, tongues is essentially prayer. And this is why oftentimes the gift of tongues is referred to as a prayer language because it is directed from an individual to God. The direction is always uh, upward. Other passages in the Scriptures make it very clear that the gift of tongues is man speaking to God in prayer as opposed to it being a prophecy or another way in which God is speaking uh, through man to other men. In verse 16 of chapter 14, the gift of tongues is declared to be the giving of thanks uh, to God. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, 
when the 120 in the upper room began to speak in tongues and the audience, the great number of pilgrims that were in the city heard them uh, speaking in these languages, we're told in verse 11 that they declared, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. In other words, they heard the disciples declaring the wonderful works of God. Prayer and praise was being directed to God for his wonderful works. And in Acts chapter 10, when the Holy Spirit came upon the Gentiles gathered at Cornelius' house while Peter was preaching to them, we're told that they began to speak with tongues and to magnify God. Speaking in tongues was magnifying God. It is declaring His glory, declaring His beauty. So everywhere we see the gift being exercised, it is prayer, it is praise, it is worship and thanksgiving being directed from man to God, uh, enabled by the Holy Spirit. Now, you say, why make a big deal out of this? Well, because it's important uh, on a, a couple of different levels. Understanding verse 2 here clears up what I think is two of the greatest misunderstandings concerning uh, the gift of tongues that exists. And it, stir, it clears up one misunderstanding that many Pentecostals and Charismatics have concerning the gift and interpretation. Oftentimes, if you're in a Pentecostal church, someone will speak out in the service in the gift of tongues, and then it will be followed by an interpretation where uh, somebody says something like, uh, my little children, be ye holy, for I am holy, or something like, be still and know that I am God. The problem with that interpretation is that is Godward toward man. And the true interpretation of a tongue will always be directed manward up toward God in prayer and thanksgiving and uh, praise. And though it may be an absolutely perfectly good prophecy that someone is speaking, it can't be the interpretation of tongues because it's not prayer or praise or worship or thanksgiving being lifted up by man to God. A proper interpretation of a tongue will typically sound something very much like what we would hear in the Psalms, where someone is lifting up praise to the Lord. I use Psalm 8 as an example here, where the psalmist says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. You set your glory above the heavens, and so forth. That's always what an interpretation of a tongue will sound like. It will be directed, prayer, praise, thanksgiving, up toward uh, the Lord. And very, very rarely today in, in any church environments do you ever hear a proper interpretation for a gift of tongues. And the reason that um, I mentioned that is that it means that by and large the beauty of the gift and the beauty of the interpretation of the tongue is lost to us when there isn't an understanding of what it is going to sound like when it's properly uh, interpreted. Um, chapter uh, Verse 2 also helps correct a wrong view that many, many other Christians hold on that they would be in a camp that's on the complete other extreme from the Pentecostal camp within Christianity. And their idea concerning the gift of tongues is that it's evangelistic in nature, that it's given for the purpose of 
preaching the gospel. And so God gives you the gift of tongues in order that uh, to give you a supernatural ability to speak the gospel in a foreign language that you haven't had to take the time to sit down and to learn. And so they'll attempt to find out what dialect it is that you're speaking and then send you as a missionary to that nation in order to preach the gospel. But again, the problem with that is that the direction is all wrong. Preaching the gospel is God through man to men. And the tongues is the other direction. So it isn't the preaching of the gospel. That's not what the gift of tongues is given for. Again, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came upon the 120 in the upper room, and they began to speak in other tongues. And Peter takes, and, and he then stands after they have spoken in tongues, If they were preaching the gospel and speaking in tongues, there was no need for him to preach the first formal sermon in church history. But they didn't preach the gospel. He stands up and then he preaches the gospel to the assembled crowd in a language that everyone could understand. So the gift of tongues is not the preaching of the gospel to uh, some other, uh, you know, people group or some other, you know, people that have a different language. Concerning prophecy in verse 3, and verse 3 contains the greatest definition of prophecy in the whole Bible, and it is when the Holy Spirit speaks a message through a human instrument. Now, this is God to man, uh, through man to man. That's a message from God to man through a human instrument. That's what prophecy is. It's the opposite of the gift of tongues. And it's spoken in a language that people can understand, and it speaks edification, exhortation, and comfort to people. It builds people up in their uh, relationship with the Lord. It encourages them. It comforts them. Sometimes you be, I've been in meetings before where somebody's going to do a prophet and a prophecy and they get up and they say, you're all going to hell in a hand, in a basket. And the, then they start to denounce individual sins and the whole deal. And, the, and everybody's waiting for the edification, exhortation, and comfort. Actually, the word exhortation there means, it comes from the word that we get, parakletos, the Holy Spirit, one who comes alongside to help. I remember one time in an afterglow, this guy let loose on us. And, um, and, I, and then I had to just say publicly, I and I don't do this very often in afterglows. And I just said, I don't receive that as from being from the Lord. And I uh, don't bear witness to it at all. And so um, let's move on with the afterglow. And I took him aside and I said, I don't know what went on there. These may, may all be issues that God is speaking to you personally about. And you think we all needed to hear it. But that wasn't for this group tonight. And so a prophecy will speak edification, exhortation, and comfort uh, to people and how we need encouragement and comfort and, and exhortation and, uh, spoken into our lives. Notice in verse 4 that he who speaks in tongues edifies himself, but it is the gift of prophecy that edifies the church. 
Now, this gives us another very important insight into the gift of tongues, and that is, why in the world is it given? Why does God give the gift? Again, why does he even want to bother with the controversy? What makes the gift so special? What makes it so important that it's worth all of the aggravation? And we're told here that it edifies the user. And the word edify, it means to build them up. It builds the user up spiritually as they exercise uh, this particular gift. So the gift of tongues always blesses God, but it also blesses and it edifies the user of uh, the gift. In verse 2, notice what happens when a Christian exercises the gift of tongues. In verse 2, Paul said, in the Spirit, he speaks mysteries. So in the Spirit, he's speaking. What he's speaking is mysteries. In verse 14, Paul said, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. So it is, and, and I want you to notice in verse 14 those three words, my spirit prays. So when a person exercises the gift of tongues, something's occurring between the Holy Spirit and their spirit, the new man that the Holy Spirit brings into our life when we're born again, and then with the Father. I am personally convinced that praying in a prayer language is simply the Holy Spirit praying through our spirit what He knows that we need to be praying to the Father for our spiritual edification or building up in whatever situation that we uh, find ourselves in. And how often you think about in our Christian life related to praising the Lord and worshiping the Lord and giving Him thanks and all there are those times where you want to say things to Him and it's just like it just gets bottled up right here. The English language, or if you know four different languages, it's not enough to say what's in my spirit for how I want to bless Him for His goodness. And so often when a person thinks about how good God has been to them, how gracious He's been to them, how faithful He has been to them, this prayer language allows them uh, to express their heart that is uh, beyond the capacity of their words to express their heart. And then on the other end of the extreme, you find yourself in a valley. You find yourself broken. You get that phone call. You hear this news and you just collapse. And I mean, it just in recent weeks, I heard a piece of news that it just, I'm still aching over it myself. And, uh, and you just sit in a heap before the Lord and you say, I don't even know what to say. My heart is so broken. I can't put it into words. And Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans chapter 8 about groanings that we can't even utter to the Lord, that the Lord interprets his prayer to him. He understands the prayer that's bound up in that groaning. We don't have to put it into words. But he also gives a prayer language to be able for a person in that particular situation where they're broken and they're hurting, they don't know how to put into words what they want to say to God and all, and they begin to use their prayer language in that circumstance, and it builds them up spiritually. And it would seem that while this gift can have a place in the public assembly when it's interpreted, it's given supremely for the private devotional life of a believer. 
I want you to notice in verse 18, Paul said, I thank my God, I speak in tongues more than you all. Yet in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding in the Greek or in the Aramaic or the Hebrew that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. So if Paul spoke in tongues more than all of them in Corinth, and this was a group that was very much into the gift of tongues, but he didn't speak the gift of tongues in a public assembly, then where is he exercising that gift? He's exercising that gift either in prayer meetings where only believers are present or in his own personal devotional life. And so when a person has the gift of tongues and they're in need of spiritual edification at the moment, they can just silently use their prayer language between them and the Lord and they're spiritually edified as a result. As Paul declared uh, of himself, his use of that in verse 15, he said, what is the result then? I will pray with the Spirit. I'll pray in tongues. And also pray with understanding. I'll pray in the language that everyone understands. I will sing with the Spirit or in tongues. I will also sing with understanding. But it was a private part of his life. Now, again, his main point in all of this is that prophecy is superior to tongues in the public assembly for the simple reason that everyone understands the language that's being spoken when they cannot understand the gift of tongues unless it is interpreted. Now, you notice in verse 5 that Paul is not in any way down on the gift of tongues. You notice he says in verse 5, I wish that you all spoke in tongues. Wow. So Paul doesn't have a negative view of the gift of tongues. And that's something to think about. Then you go down into verse 18. I thank my God that I speak in tongues more than you all. He exercised the gift of tongues in his life more than the Christians were exercising the gift of tongues in the church at Corinth. That's like a double wow. So he not only had the gift and he used the gift, but he used it more than even the zealous Corinthian Christians did And he thanked the Lord for the gift. So even in writing to Corinth here to correct the misunderstanding and the misuse of the gift, Paul spoke glowingly of it. And I'll tell you why that's important to me, and maybe it's important to others of us that are in this room here today. When I was a youth, um, I attended church for a number of years, and... um, I had been exposed to some negative opinions related to the gift of tongues, maybe not so much in the church that I attended, um, but there was a, a others and most significantly a family friend who did not like the gift of tongues. She was a blessed Christian uh, otherwise, but she would take me aside and she would warn me against the gift of tongues. Here I'm like 13 years old. <laughs> Yes, Mrs. Gulbertson. And uh, so she's letting me know this and, and this idea, you know, related to the gift of tongues that it certainly was not of God. And, um, and 
It was just people going crazy with their emotions and church and holy rollers and all of that kind of stuff. And then because she was tapped into a particular teacher whose name I will not name because I'm a gracious human being, uh, she believed that the gift was just firmly of the devil. And so that was, you know, something that uh, she kind of worked into my life. So years later, you know, when I finally get my head screwed on straight and I want to walk with God that isn't an extension of my parents and I come to the end of my own stupidity and my own pride, I walk into Calvary Chapel of Napa and I begin to listen to the Word of God. He's teaching the Word. It's simple. It's clear. I understand Him. And as Pastor Mike taught the Word of God, I came to trust him. He would read a passage, explain it, and go on and go on and go on and do things. And I came to really love him and trust him for his love for the Word and teaching all of us the Word of God. And then one night, it was a Wednesday night, midweek service. He said something as just as an aside. Uh, he made a comment that indicated that he believed that all of the gifts were for today, even the gift of tongues. I had a panic attack. All I could hear was my mom's friend telling me about all of this. Literally, I had a physical reaction to it. I was in one of those churches, and I didn't even know it. <laughs> but it created a crisis in my life because now I had people who I loved and respected spiritually in my life who believed that the gift was of the devil and not for today, and then others who believed that it was, was today and was something that people should a desire if God had that for their life. And so it put me on a search uh, of the Scriptures to discover who was right and who was wrong concerning the gift. And what I learned is that the Bible spoke very, very favorably of the gift of tongues. Not only did I learn that the Apostle Paul had the gift of tongues and used it heavily in his Christian life, and nobody could consider him to be a kook or a wacko or some kind of a crazy Christian, it was an important part of his relationship with God and the effectiveness of his life for God's purposes through his, his particular life in the day in which he lived. And so I realized, okay, wait a second. The Apostle Paul isn't down on this gift in any way. And you think you ask the average Christian, I mean, spiritually speaking, who are the top three Christians that you respect throughout the last 2,000 years of history, and the Apostle Paul's got to be in that one, two, or three in almost everyone's list. And he spoke favorably related to this gift and wasn't ashamed to speak of its place in his own Christianity, in his own life. I also learned that Jesus spoke positively of it. In Mark chapter 16, he spoke to the disciples and he said, And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they'll cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. And he goes on uh, to declare more. I learned that the Holy Spirit didn't have a trouble with the gift of tongues, obviously because he gave it to 120 people on the day of Pentecost in an upper room. And then as I would read through the book of Acts, he gave the gifts to Christians over and over and over again throughout that early part of, of church history. I want you to notice Paul's statement once again there in verse 5. I wish that you all spoke with tongues. He said that to a church. I, I wish that you all spoke with tongues. So what does that tell us? It tells us that not every Christian in Corinth spoke in tongues. Or he wouldn't have said 
what he said uh, there. And not all Christians have the gift of tongues today. Paul's already made that clear back in chapter 12. You might turn back a couple pages to chapter 12, verse 29. He said, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles? No, 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 and no. Do all have the gifts of healings? No. It's a series of rhetorical questions. Do all speak with tongues? Obvious answer is no. Do all interpret? No. But desire earnestly the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. So not every Christian speaks in tongues any more than every Christian has the gift of miracles or the gift of healings. And this is very important in the light of the fact that there are some... Pentecostal churches that teach that the gift of the Holy Spirit or the gift of tongues in a person's life is the evidence that a person is baptized with the Holy Spirit. And again, even more, some portions of Pentecostalism go so far as they're very fringe. I'm not saying it's mainstream within Pentecostalism, but they go so far as to say that tongues is the evidence that you've been born again. And until you manifest the gift of tongues, you are not truly born again. Well, clearly, in light of what Paul is teaching here, those are unbiblical teachings. And I offer you Acts chapter 8 as a proof of that. Perhaps you remember the story where Philip goes into, he's a deacon, he goes into the area of Samaria and begins to preach the gospel to the dreaded Samaritans. And they listen to the gospel. And the passage tells us that they believed in the gospel. And the word believe there that's used in the passage is the same Greek word that's used for believed in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. They trusted in Christ unto salvation. Philip then water baptizes them. These people are Christians. Over in Jerusalem, the apostles hear that a A great spiritual awakening has occurred out in Samaria. But we've got a mere deacon out there. We better get a couple of apostles out there to see what's going on. So uh, Peter and John, they go out into uh, the area. They come upon these Christians, and they then uh, uh, lay hands on them and pray for them to receive the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit came upon them. That's the baptism with the Holy Spirit. So here you have a a, a situation where they receive the the, uh, baptism with the Holy Spirit. Interesting to note that the baptism with the Holy Spirit for that group of Christians occurred subsequent to being saved. Some people say, no, when you get saved, you get everything of the Holy Spirit all at that moment. Fine, maybe most Christians do. In Acts chapter 8, they were born again, the Holy Spirit came inside of them, but some period of time lapsed before they were baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's a fact about that. It also teaches us in that baptism of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 8 that there's no evidence uh, for tongues. Nobody used the gift of tongues as they were baptized by the Holy Spirit as an evidence of being baptized with the Holy Spirit in that event. Now, if you're from a Pentecostal background and you're well-versed in the theology of it, you can be a little steamed at me at the moment because here's the typical response. Wait a second. 
when they were baptized with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 8, something supernatural happened there. Because Simon the sorcerer then asked Peter and John for the power to do this to other people. So something had to happen that was outwardly manifest, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It must have been tongues. Ah, 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 ah. Now you're going to get me steamed at you. If God wanted to say that they spoke in tongues in Acts chapter 8, he would have done that. But he didn't do that. How many of you believe the Holy Spirit has a considerable vocabulary? He knows how to communicate. He did not say that they spoke in tongues in that passage. They might have, but they might not have. You know why I think? I think it's either they did not receive the gift of tongues as a part of that baptism of the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Spirit doesn't make mention of it to give himself some wiggle room. In order to avoid the very thing that people have done today and to keep people from building a biblical base and saying that, that the gift of tongues is the evidence of being baptized with the Holy Spirit. You cannot be baptized with the Holy Spirit without evidencing uh, that with the gift of tongues. And he leaves an exception to that in Acts chapter 8 to keep people from pinning him in and saying everybody has to speak in tongues or they're not baptized uh, with the Holy Spirit. Now, having said that, the fact of the matter is, is that four out of the five times that the baptism of the Holy Spirit occurs in the book of Acts, the gift of tongues was manifest. So I'm here to offend everybody <laughs> and make everybody a little bit uncomfortable related to maybe our positions related to it. Why would I bring that up? Because I'm mean. And I bring it up for this reason. The gift of tongues was a dominant gift in the early church. And to save my life, and believe me, I tried to discover a biblical case for why it does not exist today, and I couldn't find one. And what it means is the gift should be heavily represented in the body of Christ today. And it's food for thought, I think. Now, in verses 6 through 19, Paul makes the point that something has to be intelligible uh, in order for it to be understood or to be appreciated by others. And so he uses the example of a musical instrument. I could pick up any of these musical instruments and uh, play them. Uh, and you would have no appreciation for what I played, for the simple reason that there's a thing called notes, and I don't know anything about notes, and you have to play the right notes for people to recognize the song to then appreciate the song. He uses the illustration of a trumpet in their culture, or a, a, a trumpet, for us it would be a bugle from a military context. If you handed me a bugle and I just blew into it, nobody, no military, it would be the most confused army or army base on the face of the earth because I don't know how to play a bugle. And so people wouldn't know whether they were supposed to charge or retreat or go get food or go to bed or go get their mail. But you get a trumpeter that really knows how to blow on the trumpet and then everybody understands what, what the, the uh, message is. And so in the same way, Prophecy is superior to tongues in the public assembly because everyone can understand 
what's being communicated. Now, in verses 20 through 25, this is where it really gets hard. <laughs> you thought it was hard up to now. Knock is really hard right here. I'm just enjoying myself for a moment for what I'm going to put you through in the next two minutes. Paul says that tongues is a sign to unbelievers. So Paul clearly states that to give preeminence to prophecy over the gift of tongues is going to result in a edifying experience as opposed to a terrifying experience for uh, unbelievers uh, being present in a church service. And, but in verse 20, he call, also calls the church at Corinth to be mature rather than children in understanding what it is that he's teaching here. He knows he's going to get a backlash from them on the perimeters that he's placing on these gifts uh, for them. But then notice in verse 22, and this is where it gets a little difficult, he also declares that tongues are a sign to unbelievers. And this appears very confusing because he also warns that if a believer comes into a church service and everyone's speaking in tongues, they will conclude Christians to be mad in verse 23. So how can that be true and then the gift of tongues be a sign for unbelievers? Well, he quotes a passage from Isaiah chapter 28, verses 11 and 12. And this prophecy of Isaiah in that chapter was against Israel concerning uh, Assyria because the Jews had come into this very long, protracted, disastrous rebellion against God and His Word and His ways. And because they were in rebellion against God, the Lord brought the Assyrians down upon the land in judgment. And so the sound of a foreign language in their midst was a sign of God's judgment upon the Jews at that time. It was a judgment on their corrupt priesthood. It was a judgment upon their religious apostasy. And the gift of tongues, for example, on the day of Pentecost, it was a sign of God's rejection and His judgment upon Israel's corrupt religious leaders and their overall religious apostasy at the time of Christ as a nation. And at this point in human history, God rejects what Judaism had become under the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It was old wineskins, and God revealed there on the day of Pentecost the mystery of the church as being his ambassadors, his representatives in the world. And the evidence of this transition is the gift of tongues on the day of Pentecost. The conclusion uh, drawn from the quote he gives there in verse 22, and this is not an easy verse to understand in Paul's thought progression. He is quite smart. The spiritual gift of tongues uh, was... A witness, it was a sign to unbelieving Jews of God's judgment that the supernatural of God's Holy Spirit had now at this point in time moved from Judaism as it was under the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees to this new organism known as the church. 
But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. In other words, the spiritual gift of prophecy is a further distinction between unbelievers and believers in that it can only be exercised through a believer. So again, further evidence that the supernatural of God's Holy Spirit had moved from Judaism to this new organism known as the church. Now, in verses 23 through 25, how are these supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit to operate through believers for the edification of non-Christians and the uninformed in a church service? He says in verse 23, the whole church is never to speak in tongues as a whole group and even as one without an interpretation because the people that don't understand it, they're going to think that you're crazy. But he says in verse 24 and 25, if all prophesy in the church, then the unbeliever will be convicted and he will be convinced as a result of God's message through prophecy. So, for instance, if I'm preaching a sermon and teaching a Bible study and God exercises the gift of prophecy through my life and somebody that doesn't know the Lord is sitting in a seat, maybe somebody here this morning, and you listen to it and you go, man, that's my life. That's the exact situation that I'm in. He's talking about it. Who told him? And then you get a little paranoia in your life and you're looking at who you know, sent the note to the preacher so he could hammer on you on the one Sunday that you came to church in your life, you know, and what, it's not a preacher at all or anybody tattling on you. It is somebody hearing and recognizing, wow, the Word of God, God is alive, His Word is alive, God speaks to me and He speaking, uh, speaks to people and He's speaking to me right now and it, they're convicted and they're convinced and it is a part of bringing them to the Lord. Now, one of the big questions concerning the gift of tongues in the mind of many is, is it for today? And I close with this. Is it for today? There's a group that are sitting in this room right now. Oh, I know, I know all the, I'm a mind reader. But there's a, a, a fair chance that there's a group uh, in, that sits in the room here today. You may be one of them where you say, everything you said means nothing to me at all because I don't believe that the gift exists for today. So why put us through this whole sermon on tongues and prophecy and all of this when I know that it doesn't exist uh, uh, today? And most Christians who don't believe that the gift is for today, they make their case from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'd like you just to turn back to that a page or two in your Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8. By the way, did I mention that I'm closing with this? Okay, to give you hope. So Paul writes in verse 8, he said, Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, yeah, they're going to fail. Whether there are tongues, they're going to cease. Whether there's knowledge, it'll vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a glass darkly or a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I, just as I also am known. And so Paul candidly declares that in verse 8, 
that while love will never cease, prophecies are going to fail one day, and tongues, the gift of tongues, it's going to cease one day. The word of knowledge, that gift, is going to vanish away one day. It's going to cease. Nobody disputes all of that. It's not an issue of, of, of if it's going to happen, but when it's going to happen. And when is it going to happen? The answer is given in verse 10. These gifts will pass away when that which is perfect has come. This coming of that which is perfect is going to do away with spiritual gifts. So the question then becomes, what is this that which is perfect? And many contend that it refers to the Bible. And thus, because we have the Bible, there's no need for these other gifts. And as a result, they vanished. But if that's the position that you take, and I have no eagerness to have a fight uh, with anyone on it, but notice in verse 12 that when this, that which is perfect has come, we will also no longer see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. At this event that brings the gifts of the Holy Spirit to a place of ceasing in the history of the church, at that event, I'm going to see somebody face to face. I'm going to see somebody with a face. And the result will be to know God no longer through a glass darkly, but to have a face-to-face relationship with Him. And it will result in me knowing just as I am known, knowing God with the same clarity and the same fullness with which He knows me. And to me, that cannot speak of anything other than the return of the Lord Jesus at the rapture or at the end of the age and not the giving of the Scriptures or the canonization of Scripture. I have to be fair. Many cessationists, those who don't believe that the gifts exist today or specifically don't believe that the gift of tongues believes uh, today, many cessationists don't hold um, that particular view of 1 Corinthians 13, that when that which is perfect has come, refers to the Scriptures, and yet they still believe that the gifts aren't for today. They believe that they disappeared during the apostolic age for whatever reason that they hold that position, but I can't find a biblical reason for holding that position. Maybe they're not comfortable with the gifts or it ties up some loose ends that makes it easier for them. I... I um, I don't know. So many cessations, they, they do agree that the gifts of the Spirit will be done away with at Jesus' future coming, but they think it's come to, the end of, uh, come to an end with the apostolic age. But the problem with that, at least for me, is that in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it states that the gift of tongues will not cease until that which is perfect has come. And it will not cease until prophecy and knowledge cease as well. And that which is perfect has not come. Jesus has not come in his second coming yet or in the rapture of the church. And so if we're not going to say prophecy has ceased and knowledge has not ceased, we cannot pick on the gift of tongues and say that has ceased uniquely among the gifts of the Holy Spirit. You ever wonder why we don't have a place, and we'll talk maybe more about this next Sunday in our service where I invite everybody to speak in tongues all together. Now you know from the passage, and it's the point of the passage, 
for the simple reason that in the public assembly, the gift of prophecy is superior to the gift of tongues and that prophecy can be understood by everyone who is in the room. Why spend an... I'm at 58 minutes and 6 seconds, not counting the Scripture reading, for those of you who weren't counting. And believe me, I tried every way I could find this week to break this up into two sermons or three (laughs) sermons. It doesn't do it. It's all one big, beautiful baby boy. But why commit so much time to all of this? It is so important in the end of April in 2014 for us as Christians that we reject utterly any other Christianity than the one that's found in the Bible. Because the cultural Christianity or the Christianity that you and I have figured out in our minds that we're comfortable with as long as it only goes here and it doesn't go further than that, it's not going to work for us. Look at the world around us. You've got the fulfillment potentially. I don't say, I don't set dates. The potential of the fulfillment of Ezekiel 38 and 39 going on for the last four weeks related to Russia and the Middle East and all. It's the end of the age. I don't know when the Lord is going to rapture the church, but our lives need to be marked by the supernatural, and we need to be open to every gift of the Holy Spirit that He has for our lives, whether we're comfortable with it or not, whether we understand it or we don't, and hopefully we understand something about at least these gifts here this morning as a result. Listen, if God has a gift for you, it is because you need it. It's not an option for you. You're not going to make it. You're not going to make a difference You're not going to have the relationship with Christ that he wants to have with you independent of that gift. And so no matter what the gift is, all he gives are good gifts. And to seek, desire earnestly these gifts, to discover what they are, and then to operate in those gifts. Be open to everything that God has for you related to the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And I hope in some way that I have either confused a few people here today related to tongues where you say it isn't for today or that's been taken off of the table for you as an objection related to that gift. Because trust me, if he has the gift for you, it's because you need it. We need everything that he has for us. And we need a supernatural Christianity, the one that's described in the Bible, not the one we grew up in, not the silly nonsense 
that's going on in a large degree around us today. That foundation and that Christianity is not going to get us through what God is privileging us to have, and that is to represent him at this age in human history. And part of that has to do with being open to everything that he has for us, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, all of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word, very thorough, very complete. And we thank you for the instruction. Lord, we do not want to be a church that is settled into some groove or has become an old wineskin of just accepting a kind of Christianity that worked in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and the 90s and in the early 2000s. We need the Christianity that comes from your book, the Christianity that makes us more than conquerors today in this day and in this hour. And so we pray, Lord, for ourselves as a church. We pray for each one of ourselves individually, those that sit on either side of us, We pray that you take our time in your word today to remove obstacles and any kind of hesitation toward releasing to you and the fullness of the supernatural of this Christian life. Confirm your word with accompanying signs and wonders as people begin now to seek you in a greater measure, Lord, concerning all of these things that we've talked about today. You know how to take us by the hand and to bring us into the fullness of your gifting and of your calling. We surrender to that, and we ask that you would do that, not only in our life, but in the lives of everyone else in this room and in this fellowship. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you